Well, if you have a Bible, we'd invite you to begin to work your way to the book of Nahum. Nahum is another one of the minor prophets. If you were with us over the last month, we went through the book of Jonah. Nahum's two books over from that. So uh, towards the end of the Old Testament, in the small area, use your table of contents, use whatever you need. But Nahum is where we're going to be today. Before we get there, uh, I just want to say something about Nahum. I want to say that this message and this book is for the deepening, the strengthening of your joy and your faith. And I say that because it's a difficult book. And the end is to make our faith go deeper and make our joy be wider. And so just know that up front. We're going to get there. If you, I'm going to guess that 98% of you have never heard a sermon from this book. The reason will become evident in just a moment. But I want you to stick with me for the next half hour because it is for your joy that God has put this book in this, in this Bible. So with that, I'll read the first eight verses, and then I'll pray for us, and we'll continue. Nahum chapter 1, verse 1. Listen carefully. This is God's word. An oracle concerning Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum of Elkosh. The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power, and the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. His way is in the whirlwind and storm, and the clouds are the dust of his feet. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry. He dries up all the rivers. Bashan and Carmel wither. The bloom of Lebanon withers. The mountains quake before him. The hills melt. The earth heaves before him. The world and all who dwell in it. Who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the heat of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire, and the rocks are broken on, into pieces by him. The Lord is good. A stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him. But with an overwhelming, overflowing flood, he will make a complete end of the adversaries and will pursue his enemies into darkness. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Jesus said, heaven and earth will pass away. What you just read never will. So let's pray. Father, we come before you now, God, knowing that we need a word from you and not from me. So, Holy Spirit, would you do that now in this place? God, would you bring us to what I said in the beginning, a deeper knowledge of you and a deeper joy in you through this word, to the end that Jesus is seen and he's savored and, and that he has lived out through our lives more. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So, last week... We closed the book of Jonah. And if you haven't been here, we went four weeks in Jonah. And if you remember last week, Jonah in chapter four starts out, Jonah is very angry with God. And do you remember why he was angry with God? He was angry with God because God had come and sent Jonah. Jonah eventually goes, preaches a terrible sermon, but the people of the Ninevites repent and God relents. And then chapter four starts and says, Jonah was exceedingly angry. Do you remember why he was angry? He's angry because, well, he quotes, he quotes part of, 
of Scripture. In, in verse 2 of chapter 4 of Jonah, he says this, For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Jonah was angry at the compassion and mercy of God. Now, in 21st century in America, suburban context, we're like, Jonah, what's your problem? But again, I would say that every person in this room, if we had seen what Jonah had seen and experienced what Jonah had experienced, we would be probably angry at God for his mercy, his grace, and his compassion. But Jonah doesn't understand how he can reconcile this God that is just and merciful. In fact, Jonah only quotes part of the verse in Exodus 36. I think I'll have that on the screen. He only quotes the first half of the verse. And in, in Exodus 36, it, it goes on like this. It says, the Lord, the Lord, this is God's self-disclosure of who he is. And God says this, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. That's where Jonah stops keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. Maybe you noticed in Nahum, he quotes that part, who will by no means clear the guilty. And so what Jonah had a hard time understanding is how does the justice of God and the mercy of God relate it's, it's a question that many people have struggled with through the ages. It's a question that a whole book of the New Testament is almost in, exclusively dedicated to the book of Romans. How, how can God be both just and the justifier of sinners? And so he wrestles with that. But, but honestly, Nahum, Nahum as, as we saw, it's, it's hard at first glance to see what in the world does this have to do with us? I mean, just look at some of the chapter titles. God's wrath against Nineveh. The destruction of Nineveh. Woe to Nineveh. It's not easy. This is why I said you've probably never heard a sermon like this. Because quite honestly, we... we we, in 21st century American suburban contests, want a God, or at least culture-wide, is okay with a God who we can say is a God of love. All love, all mercy, all grace, all compassion, and that's who we, we want. But, but if you just stop and think about it for a moment, that ends up to be, one, a figment of our imagination, because that's not all that God is. And if we create a God that is palatable to us, then we end up worshiping someone or something that is not ultimately God. But two, love demands wrath. So I'm a father of four daughters, and as of Friday night, a grandfather of one more daughter. There you go. So I, because I love my daughters... I love them because I am a father of love. If I see one of you or someone mistreat, abuse, or take advantage of my daughters, my righteous wrath will rise. I will punch you in the throat. <laughs> and that will be a good thing. I would not be a loving father or grandfather if I said, well, grace, mercy, and compassion, you keep taking advantage of my daughter. See, love demands wrath. They, they, they aren't separate in God. They are two sides of the same coin. And so, again, this is hard for us to, to start to wrap our minds around, but, but this is what Nahum wants us to see. Nahum wants us to wrestle with this. 
And, and again, it's not necessarily on the surface palatable, but, but again, I believe this is for the deepening of our understanding and of our joy. You know, a few years ago, I was preaching through the minor prophets, and the, there's 12 of them, and, I, and the point of the series was to point every book to show how it points to Jesus. Because Jesus in John chapter 5 says that all the scriptures testify about me. And so I was going through the series and, and Nahum is number 7 out of 12. So it's right past the halfway point. And, and I got to it, I studied it that week and I was like, oh no. <laughs> well, what am I going to say here? In fact, I wrestled with it some more and uh, I went down, I remember that night going down to, uh, out of my office, going to my house, going, talking to my wife and saying, I just don't think I can preach this. Listen, it's all, it's all wrath. It's all judgment. And by the way, the minor prophets tend to major on that. And so I've covered that. I think I'm good. And Jennifer being very uh, understanding, she's like, yeah, I get that. And the next book is Habakkuk. And that, that there's some good stuff in that. Just, just skip it. It's like, yeah, okay. I'll skip it. Well, that night we had some friends over. Uh, Josh and Caitlin, they, they came over and they had been to Bible college. And um, as we sat down for dinner, Josh says, hey, I'm looking forward to the message on Habak- or Nahum. I was like, really? Why is that? He's like, well, I, we went to Bible college. I had a class on the minor prophets and we skipped Nahum. I'm like, are you serious? So I said, no, I, I need to, do, do we believe, do, believe, do we believe what God says about his word? 2 Timothy 3.16, do we believe that this is uh, God-breathed and useful? I said, yes, I do. I just, I can't see it on the surface. And then I th- thought about what Jesus said in, in John chapter 5. Then I thought about Jesus uh, in Luke 24 after his resurrection. He's walking on the road to Emmaus with two of his disciples. And it says, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted the things concerning himself. So at some point on that seven-mile journey, Jesus, walking with disciples, gets to Nahum and he says, hey, here I am in this book. Here I was the whole time. So I was like, okay, well, where are you, Jesus? Then I was reminded of uh, uh, what Paul says in the book of Romans. In Romans chapter 15, I think I have that on the screen here. In Romans 15, Paul says this. He says, for whatever was written in the former days, Nahum, was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. So Nahum is here for your encouragement. For, for your hope. And I know you're, if you invited a friend today, you're already thinking of ways to apologize. Like, it's not normally like this. Maybe you've texted him on the down low. But again, I would, I would tell you, this is for our hope. I believe there are at least two lessons that, that are for our endurance, our encouragement, and our hope. One is a spiritual lesson about man from the history of the Ninevites. And the second one is a theological lesson about God from the content of the book, okay? So that's where we're going to go with this this morning. A spiritual lesson about man from the history and a theological lesson about God from the content. Let's start with the spiritual lesson about man. To do that, we have to understand some time frame. Because you might be thinking, we just spent four weeks talking about God's grace and mercy to the Ninevites. Yes, but this is a different time period. 
So in the year 770, God, put it on the screen, (laughs) Jesus comes, uh, Jesus, no, Jonah comes to the Ninevites and he preaches a message that they repent, God relents, and uh, there is a revival of sorts that busts out in Nineveh. But then about 48 years later, 722, the next time we see the Assyrians, they have completely reverted. They are destroying Israel. In fact, they, they go into the northern ten tribes of, of God's covenant people. They, they destroy them. They rape. They pillage. They murder. And those that survive, they take and they scatter them over the Assyrian Empire so that there would be no uh, rising up of national pockets of, of Judaism once again from the Assyrians. It was brutal what they did. You fast forward about another 50 years in the year 644 uh, through a series of other uh, powerful kings. The Assyrians roll down to Egypt into Thebes and conquer Thebes, the capital city of the Egyptians. And this was huge news in the ancient world. This was like uh, on par with the fall of Rome that if Thebes can fall, who in the world could, could possibly stop the Assyrians? But what the Assyrians didn't know at this time was on the border of their kingdom, another people were rising up. A people called the Babylonians. And the Babylonians would look at the Assyrians and say, that's a good policy. Reign with terror and bloodshed and fear. We're going to emulate them. And eventually they rise up and they, in 612, destroy Nineveh and the Assyrians. Okay, Nahum's prophecy comes in between the conquering of Thebes and the Babylonian uh, conquer of Nineveh. And it's as if Nahum is standing uh, in the future and he's looking at great detail and he's looking at this evil city known for bloodshed, known for violence, known for idolatry, known for all the wickedness that could rise up in a human heart. And he's saying in specific detail how God is going to judge the Ninevites. Now, again, I said there's a spiritual lesson about man from history. So our question, our concern is what happened between 770 and 722 B.C.? How can a nation go from genuine repentance, genuine humility, falling on their face before God, and within one generation completely turn their back on God? And here's the lesson. That, that the natural flow of, of both humanity, men and women, and nations is away from God, not toward God. We sang about it this morning. Our hearts, our hearts are prone to wander. And we've seen this, uh, we've seen this throughout history. If you study uh, those that landed on Plymouth in in our own country, the the first generation were praising God, thanking God for his providence and grace. And historians tell us that within the uh, one generation, they had begun to turn. They had begun to think about worldly advancement, worldly pleasures, worldly, uh, all those things in just one generation. But but we see it in, in our own hearts as well. If history uh, repeats as a pastor, I've seen this, there are people in this room who would say, yes, I love Jesus, I'm going hard after him, and you won't be here a year from now. Oh, you won't plan on abandoning God, you won't plan on, uh, on drifting, you will just go with the course of the world. And so the question is, how? How do we for ourselves and for the next generation be a people that pass along the baton of faith? 
How can we learn from this? Well, I, I think that there's three things. One for ourselves and one for the next generation. First of all, you have to make the all-out pursuit of God and godliness the number one unquestioned priority in your life. You have to make the all-out pursuit of God and godliness the unquestioned number one pursuit in your life, both for yourself and for your kids. Our kids can see, do you genuinely believe this? Or is God and the pursuit of God just another thing to pursue? And in the end, we'll all pick and choose what's best. See, we cannot believe for the next generation. We cannot repent for the next generation. But you need to understand that God is sovereign. And and for every generation, without an intervening word from God, no one will come to faith in him. And yet God says in his word, he delights to use means of grace. And so we need to employ the means of grace for ourselves and for the next generation if we are not going to drift from God. What are the means of grace? This is just, again, an all-out pursuit of God, knowing what stirs your affections for God we talk a lot about here. What is it that, that, that makes you uh, hunger for God, want to know God, want to go deeper with God, and, and put that in your calendar, put that in a time and a place in your life? What is it that robs your affections from God? Not necessarily uh, bad things, just a a thousand other things want to rob our affections for God. And if you allow them to do it, you will drift from God. And and so we need to employ the means of God's grace. Again, we talk about it a lot here. It's the word of God, the people of God, the spirit of God. So if you want to be uh, one put on display for your kids in authentic, genuine pursuit of God, You need to prioritize the word of God. You need to, in some way, shape, or form, make this your daily bread. You need to go after that with the people of God. No one can do this on our own. And this faith is not an individualistic faith. You need one another and their gifts, and they need you. And you need the spirit of God. You need the spirit of God to ask, Lord, please don't let me drift. Don't let me wander. I feel it, Lord. And so you renew your mind and your spirit in that. So we, we, we pursue God. We um, employ the means of grace. And then for our kids, we, we need to speak. And for the next generation, we need to speak the gospel, speak words of encouragement to them. That they can see if your faith is authentic. They're not looking for perfect faith. They, they want to see, do you believe this? Do you believe the gospel? Do you repent? Have you ever said to your kids, I'm sorry, I, I need God's grace as much as you You need to put on display that they need the gospel. You need to remind them that their best efforts in life will not be good enough, but that God is good. And while we can't believe for the next generation, while we can't trust God for the next generation, while we can't uh, have on fire faith for them, God says we can pray for them. And so we can get on our face and ask God. And God delights to use means of grace to pass on the torch of faith. So there's a spiritual lesson about the history, uh, from the history of Ninevites. Now let's look at a theological lesson. Again, I, I said the prophets, that they, they did not see a need to be God's PR representative. They didn't see a need to kind of take the message of God and, and make it nice for consumption of the masses. And so the prophets will often talk about God's righteous indignation. 
But no one outdoes them like Nahum. As I said, we just looked at some of the titles. Nahum is all about it. And so in chapter 2, let's look at some of the poetic ways that Nahum is going to describe the downfall of the Assyrians. In chapter 2, the, the Assyrians were known as the lions of the ancient Near East, just devouring whatever came across their path. Verse 11, where is the lion's den, the feeding place of the young lions, where the lion and the lioness went, where his cubs were, with none to disturb? The lions tore enough for his cubs and strangled prey for his lionesses. He filled his caves with prey and his dens with torn flesh. Verse 13, behold, I am against you, declares the Lord of hosts. There are no scarier words for a nation or for a person than those words. And I will burn your chariots in smoke, and the sword shall devour your young lions. I will cut off your prey from the earth, and the voice of your messengers shall no longer be heard. The lion will be devoured. They were known as boasting in their bloodshed. They were known as the bloody city. And so God says that the blood that you've shed of others, I'm going to shed your blood. Verse 1 of chapter 3. Woe to the bloody city, all full of lies and plunder, no end to the prey, the crack of the whip and the rumbling of the wheel, galloping horse and bounding chariot, horsemen charging, flashing sword and glittering spear, host of slain, (coughs) heaps of corpses, Dead bodies without ends, and they stumble over the bodies. A picture of what's going to take place inside the city walls of Nineveh. Verse 4, they were, they were known for their shamelessness and their adultery and their idolatry. And so the shameless one will be shamed. Verse 4, and all for the countless whorings of the prostitute, graceful and deadly charms, who betrays nations with her whorings and peoples with her charms, Behold, I am against you, declares the Lord of hosts. And I will lift up your skirts over your face, and I will make nations look at your nakedness and kingdoms at your shame. The shameless one will be shamed. Remember what Nahum said at the very beginning of chapter 1. Verse 2, he says, The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his enemies and keeps wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power. The Lord will by no means clear the guilty. But do you remember what he said in verse 7? He said, the Lord is good. It's as if Nahum is saying that all that he's describing is in a way showing, putting on display the goodness of God. We say, how can that be? That doesn't sit well with our modern sensibilities. How can that be? Well, let me tell a story. When I was seven, Super Bowl Sunday, we had a tradition in our family. We'd go to some other friends of the family and watch the Super Bowl. I think it was, yeah, 1982, so you can do the math. And uh, <clears throat> I was, it was the 49ers and Bengals. I remember that. And my mom worked. She sold, she sold new homes, and so she was going to join us later in the day, and Uh, So we went to our friend's house. My mom joined us. And after watching the Super Bowl, we came home. And uh, when we came home, uh, we went up to our bedrooms. And my mom yells out to my sister, Amy, get in here. (laughs) She's like, what? She's like, why did you throw my clothes all over the the 
bedroom floor. She's like, I didn't do that. She's like, what, I wouldn't do this. Why are my clothes all over? And then it dawned on us. Someone had broken into our house. And there was a short moment, like, is the person still in the house? But then we, we realized what was going on. Well, they had stolen jewelry. They had stolen money. They had stolen a bunch of things. They had broken the back door's lock, and, and they were gone. And there's this, this moment as a, as a seven-year-old, like, there's an injustice out there. And now, how many ever years later, that's still out there. We haven't got our money back. We haven't, we haven't got uh, the, 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 the jewelry back. There is an injustice hanging out there. Now, why would I start with that? Why, why not just point to the big ones that we know? Why not talk about uh, slavery in America? Why not talk about uh, the Hitler or Pol Pot or when I was a senior in high school, Rwanda? Uh, there, there are massive injustices on a massive scale going on. But here's the deal. Every injustice is out there still hanging. And if it doesn't get met with justice, what does that say about God? No matter how big or small, we say this, you are first a sinner, second sinned against. And Alexander Solzhenitsyn said the, the, the dividing line between good and evil runs through every human heart. So, so you have sinned, you have committed injustices, and injustices have been committed against you. What does that say about God? If God does not punish sin, it's, it says that God is not just. If God is not just, it says God is not righteous. If God is not righteous, God is not loving. Do you, you see the track? So we sing songs of God's amazing grace. But you don't really understand God's amazing grace until you understand God is a God of justice. And what Nahum is saying, he is good because he will not leave injustices hanging forever and ever and ever. He is good. He is good because he is a God who deals with injustice. What would it say to a seven-year-old if God just says, well, I'm sorry you had an injustice? What would it say to a widow whose land is taken from her and she starves to death if God was indifferent to that? What would it say to the little girl working in the rice mill as a slave in India? What would it say to the millions of unborn babies aborted in the womb if God was indifferent to that? It would say, God, you aren't good. But Nam says, no, God is good. He is very good in two ways because he will deal with all injustices. And he is good, notice why, because he is a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him. He's a stronghold. He's a, he's a, he's a barrier against uh, the injustices of the world. How, how does he do that? Well, we know. We know how he's a stronghold. He's a stronghold only insofar as Jesus Christ's life, death, burial, and resurrection. The message of the Bible is this. All have sinned, and all sin will be punished. All have sinned, and all sin will be punished. Every sin, every white lie you've told, every, every piece of greed, every lust, every sin will be punished by a just and righteous God in one of two ways. It'll be punished on Jesus Christ, on the cross. He who knew no sin became sin, that we might become the righteousness of God. He will bear it for us. He's a stronghold for those who take refuge in him. 
And if you don't take refuge in him, it will still meet God's righteous justice on the day of judgment. Every injustice will be destroyed. He will make an end to all his adversaries. And so, God is good. God is good because he has provided a way. He has provided a cover. Jesus Christ is that cover. Paul reminds the Christians in Ephesus, in Ephesians chapter 2, that we were by nature children of wrath. So, so by nature we deserved the justified wrath of God for our sins. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love for which he loved us in Jesus Christ, while we were still dead in our sinners, made us alive together with Christ. For by grace you have been saved. Did you ever ask the question, saved from what? Well, Nahum tells us, you have been saved from God, for God. You've been saved from God's righteous indignation, his holy wrath to become a family member in God. Jesus will take that. So if you've never run to the cross, the message of Nahum is God is a refuge for those who take refuge in him. And you can run to him. You can cling to him. And when the day of judgment comes, he will see Jesus and see your righteousness. Not your righteousness, his righteousness in you credited to your account. But God is a good God. And he's a loving God. He is full of mercy and compassion and will by no means let the guilty go unpunished. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him. Let's pray. Father, we, we do thank you that you are good. Lord, you would have been righteous and just to rightly punish every sin, ours included. You'd still be God. But you are even more glorious because in Jesus you came and you took the penalty that we deserved. And by grace through faith, we have life in you forever and ever. Lord, I pray for anyone here that has not run to the cross. May this be the day. May this be the day that they cling to you and find that an enemy can become a son or daughter. For those of us that have known you for a while, Lord, let us too cling to the cross to hold to your goodness and righteousness and justice, to know that Jesus has paid it all. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.